Father God, we bow here in your presence once again, thanking you for the privilege and the freedom to come to worship. Lord, we thank you for just our being here together today. And Father, we ask now that you would, through your Holy Spirit, open up your word to us and speak to us individually. Whatever it may be that you want us to know or to hear from you, may we hear it here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't you all be seated? And while you're being seated, I just want to say to these girls over here, I just want to repeat what uh, Arnold said and how uh, happy we are for you and how happy we are that you're here at this church. And we just look forward to your smiling faces every Sunday you come here. So just want you to know that we appreciate you being here. You know, if you've been with us for the past few months, you know where we've been, we've been doing a study in the book of Joshua. And it's, uh, it's one of those books that we, you may not study that often, but it's one of those books that has a, a great deal of application for us today in our Christian lives. As we've been studying, we know that Joshua has been led of God to go into this promised land called Canaan, which would eventually become Israel. And he is to clear out the enemy that is there. And um, it's a lot of carnage, a lot of death, a lot of fighting and But God has given these people 700 years, as we've looked at before, from the time Abraham came into the land until now, he's given them 700 years to repent, and they haven't. And so God is bringing judgment on them, and Joshua and the nation of Israel is his instrument to bring that judgment. But in doing so, God has given Israel very strict warnings and guidelines, that as you go into the land, you are not to intermingle with the people that are there. That means that you don't marry them, you don't have treaties with them, you don't establish friendships with them. The reason for that is very simple. God knew, and history has proven it, that Israel had a propensity toward idolatry, having come out of Egypt, and that they would be tempted on a regular basis to be involved in the idolatry of that land, the land of Canaan, and the nations that were there. And sure enough, that's what happened. And the unbeliever continually influenced the believer. Um, Israel did not, as we'll talk about toward the end of the study, did not do all that God had told them and did not get the people out of the land, and it was always a thorn in their flesh, a thorn in their side. One of uh, the examples of Israel being um, influenced by the pagans around them happened before this. It happened actually under the leadership of Moses, when they were wandering out in the desert. The Bible tells us they wandered all over the wilderness and eventually, and from time to time, would come up to the border of the nation of Israel. This is one of those times. They have come up and they're on the other side of the Jordan River where they first came up to the land under Joshua, but they're just wandering around out there. And As it turns out, they were in the land of Moab, and the Moabites, the women there, were into temple prostitution. That was part of the ritual of the pagan people that lived there. And the Bible tells us that they seduced some of the men of the Israelites and invited them over into their cities, and they went, and they were immoral in their practices, and they participated with that, but they also participated in the idol worship of these women. And in Numbers 25.3, it says this. It says, So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. 
Now the Baal of Peor was the idol that they worshipped. And the men of Israel literally began to idol, worship the idols of those women because of what they were doing and what they were participating in. And God judged them there. So this was something that Israel had a weakness for. And God knew that. Now, why does it say that Israel yoked themselves to the idols? What is it talking about? Well, this is a term that's used a lot in Scripture. And what it's talking about basically is this, that a believer and unbeliever are binding themselves together in a relationship where the believer is being influenced in a negative way. That's what the Bible terms, what it means by this term, to being, be yoked together with an unbeliever. In this particular situation, Israel was yoking themselves together. Now, most of us probably know what a yoke is. It's the wooden contraption, I guess you'd call it, that goes on the necks of ox as they are tied to a cart to pull the cart. Two are in a yoke, and they pull together. There's an interesting verse. It's back in Deuteronomy, part of the law of Moses, where God instructs Israel this very odd instruction. Now watch. Deuteronomy 22, verse 10. It says, Do not plow with an ox and a donkey yoked together. What does that mean? Well, God was trying to give them rules and regulations to protect the animals, first of all. If you put an ox and a donkey together, the ox is going to overpower the donkey, trample it, and probably kill it because of the difference between the animals. Now, there was also a spiritual significance to it because God was always using the law to bring about spiritual prophetic utterances and things like that, imagery, if you will. And it was an example of what he wanted from the people. Don't be yoked together with the unbelievers. And that proved to be uh, true in their particular life uh, and their situation. Now, the same is true of us today. Because we're told in Scripture that as believers, we are not to be yoked together with unbelievers in a relationship where we are entangled in their life. Let me read you this passage out of 2 Corinthians. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 15. He says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial, or Satan? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Now he's giving the church very specific guidelines here. That you're not to enter into a relationship, whatever that relationship may look like, where you are in it with an unbeliever and they have some sort of claim or have bound you up in a relationship that is going to be something that will influence your life in a negative way. Marriage being the, the most obvious. Um, marriage is something where I think young women especially enter into thinking, well, I'll change the man. I'll change him into a believer. I just am in love with him and I, and I must marry him. I've been 40 years in ministry in one form or fashion. And I've talked to a lot of people, a lot of people who have gotten themselves into trouble either through marriage or some other manner of binding themselves together and wrapping themselves up in a relationship with an unbeliever. And they've tried to convince themselves that it would be okay. This situation was different. And it always ended up in a disaster. 
and marriage was, of course, the most, un, the most common. And whenever you enter into a marriage with an unbeliever and you've convinced yourself that this is going to be okay, regardless of how much you love that person and how devoted you may be to that person, there are always these things that arise that are you don't have in common, and they always end up in disaster. Now, there are other examples of an unequally yoked relationship. You go into business with an unbeliever, and that is a problem, too, because now you're legally bound in a relationship with someone who doesn't share your same ideas on what the business should be like and and what it should uh, achieve and so forth. You have your best friend in the whole world, person that you maybe grew up with, and you're a believer and they're not. And you continually have this relationship together where this person is continually influencing your life in a negative way. You're in an unequal relationship. You're yoked together in a binding type of relationship where there are problems. Now, there's a difference. Now, let me explain something to you before we get started here. There is a difference between loving lost people, building bridges to those people, and being kind to those people, and trying to let them see the gospel of Christ and hear the gospel of Christ. There's a difference between reaching out and accepting them and being kind and loving and gracious and the difference between what we're talking about here where you've entered into a binding relationship that obligates you in some form or fashion that may compromise your relationship with the Lord. And this is what we're talking about today. And I don't want you to misconstrue in any way because we are not talking about shunning or being cruel to or ignoring a person that doesn't understand your faith. Of course, we're saying just the opposite in this church, that you be loving and accepting and gracious and kind and understanding because you used to be there too. But at the same time, God has told me, now don't enter into a relationship that is going to be so binding where this person's lifestyle affects you and your relationship to me. Same thing that he told the Israelites when they went into the land of Canaan. Don't do it. Paul has another example or an interesting verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 10. Now, Paul had just talked to the church. He's instructed the church that if you know of a person referencing a believer, really, he was saying if you have another believer in your life that's living an immoral life, then pull away from that person and don't associate with them because even they will affect your life. And now he clears something up here. We'll look at what he says in the next in verses 9 and 10. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world or the unbeliever who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. He said, I'm not talking to you about not, associate, not associating with unbelievers. Because there's no other way to reach that person for Christ if you don't associate with them. I'm telling you, don't enter into a relationship where this person's life is going to affect yours. He said, and this can even happen among believers. If the believer's living contrary to what God would have you to do. So he said, but I'm talking to you about a believer in this passage, he says. He said, I'm not telling you to withdraw from unbelievers. Now that's important. 
because we as Christians sometimes give that impression in what it says to the unbelieving world, the world that is searching for Christ, is that you're not good enough and we don't care about you. And that is not true. And that is not something that we want to convey. Today's text, what we're going to be looking at today, is a perfect example of what happens when you bind yourself into a yoked type of situation with an unbeliever or someone that doesn't share your way of thinking and your goals and so forth. Now, the Gibeonites, let's back up and talk about what happened last week. Remember last week when these people appeared to Joshua and the the Israelites and said to them, we've come from a far country and our clothes are all worn out, our bread is now molded, our feet are cracked. I mean, we've been in this desert for a long time and we'd like to make a treaty with you. Joshua examines everything, looks at it, and appears to be correct. So he makes a treaty with them. The only thing is that they had lied to him. They were his next-door neighbors, the same people that God had said, you are to destroy, you are not to make a treaty with these people. And yet they had duped the Israelites into believing them. And Joshua makes a treaty, and all of the the elders of Israel gather together and swear in the name of God that they will be... Uh, allies with these people. And that, that oath was binding. That oath was real. And if they had broken the oath, God would have judged them because now they have invoked the name of Jehovah God into this transaction. Now here's what happened. First part of this chapter that we're not looking at. The other kings in the land hear about it. They understand what Gibeon has done. They understand that the city of Gibeon has made a treaty with Israel, and they're scared to death because Gibeon had a mighty army. And this city, they decide, needs to be neutralized. So the five kings in the land decide to destroy Gibeon. So they come and they attack this city. Now we pick up with the story in Joshua chapter 10, verse 5. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem... Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon joined forces. They moved up with all their troops and took up positions against Gibeon and attacked it. The Gibeonites then sent word to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal. Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. And therein lies the problem. Because you see, that wasn't Joshua's strategy. Joshua's strategy in overpowering the the land was to take it one city at a time. To drive a wedge between them so that they couldn't join forces. And to take them out one city at a time. That was the strategy. And now all of a sudden, look what's happened. We swore an oath to these people to be their allies. And now five different armies are coming against them. And I am now obligated, obligated to go and defend them. To put my armies at risk because of this oath that we have taken with these unbelievers. A perfect example of what happens when you bind yourself together in a relationship with somebody that is pagan or an unbeliever or doesn't see life the way that you do. And they're being dragged into the Gibeonite problem. 
Look at the next couple of verses in Joshua 10, verses 7 and 8. It says, So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with the entire army. Now he's bringing them all, including the best fighting men. Now the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand, and not one of them will be able to withstand you. If God had not intervened, as you're going to see, if God did not protect Israel in this fight, they would have not won. But God said, don't worry about it. He said, I'm there with you. Even though you made this silly oath to these people, I'll defend you. Now, those are my words. They're not in the Bible, okay? I ad-lib a little bit. You're going to have to pay attention or you're going to think it's Scripture. In Joshua 10, verses 9 through 11, watch what happens with this fight. After an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. Now watch, the Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. So Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road going down to Beth Horon and cut them down all the way to Azekah and Makeda. And they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Horon to Azekah. The Lord hurled large hailstones down on them. And more of them died from the hail than hail than died or were killed by the swords of the Israelites. Now notice that. That God killed more of them than Joshua did. He had to. Hailstones from heaven. I don't know what it is with God and hailstones, but boy, this happens a lot in Scripture, doesn't it? He rains down hailstones on people. And can you imagine? I, don't, I can't even imagine what this would be like. But it says that more of them died because of the hailstones than they did because of the armies of Joshua. Now watch the next passage. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this part, but it's very, very interesting. Watch. In verses 12 through 15. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, Son, stand still over Gibeon, and you, moon, over the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, till the nation avenged itself on its enemies, as it is written in the book of Joshua. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There, was, there has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Then Joshua returned with all of Israel to the camp of Gilgal. You read that and you think to yourself, my goodness, what is going on? Well, the sun was going down. The armies had scattered. They were chasing them down, cleaning up and finishing them off. And Joshua, in the presence of Israel, says to the sun, Stand still. The moon don't come up. Give us time to finish. And the Bible says that the, that the Lord, that never, never has this been done, it says the Lord listened to him and did what he asked. You know, I have had people in various places in Scripture, but I've had people from time to time look at things like this and they say to me, well, Pastor, that couldn't possibly have happened. And what is really depressing about it is I've had Christians tell me that. 
And here's the reason why. They'll say, well, that couldn't possibly have happened because scientifically it can't happen. You can't just stop the rotation of planets. You can't stop the earth on its axis. You can't stop things like that for an entire day without everything flying apart. What? You know, the God that put it there, he can't stop it without damaging something. It's amazing to me how Christians always have to have a plausible explanation for the miracles of God. And you can't. These are miraculous events. I do not understand them. I don't have to explain them. I just have to say they're there, it happened, and I believe it. In um, in this verse where he says, this is what happened and it is written in the book of Jasher. That is not part of Scripture. That is probably just a historical account that also recorded this event. And he's saying, see, it's not only being written here, but it's also written down in the annals of Jasher, too. He acknowledges that this took place. So, like I said, I could, you know, we could preach a sermon about the earth or the moon and the sun standing still, but we're not going to. We're going to talk about being unequally yoked and the problems that it causes. I want to share with you now three things that are problems that occur when you do this. Three areas where you're going to have problems if you unite yourself to an unbeliever in an unequal binding relationship, be it marriage or be it a business transaction or be it a friendship that is unequal and and controls you or has an influence over your life. It could be anything. This This is the problem. And here's why this is something that you shouldn't be doing. Number one is when you do that, you need to understand there are just too many differences. This is the problem with it. There are just too many things that are different about you and about the other person. And no matter what the transaction, no matter what the relationship, there are differences and you as a Christian have got to acknowledge that and understand that. We have different goals than people who don't know the Lord. We have different direction in life. The level of integrity is different. That matters to us. It may not matter to any other person, but it matters to the believer, or at least it should. Your values are different. You're married to an unbeliever, and you want to give money to missions or support the church or help somebody. The unbeliever may or may not want to do that. That's foolishness to them. You're in business and your values are such that you want to treat people this way and do business this way according to these standards. The unbelieving business partner may not want to do that. So there are just a tremendous amount of differences. See, this is part of the problem when young people, and I'm really hoping that you young people are listening to this. All of you that are young and unmarried who want to be married someday, you better hear this. Because you know what you're going to do? You're going to get into a relationship where you are dating an unbeliever and you are so in love and he is so handsome. Oh, she is so hot. I would say beautiful, but you guys say hot. And it doesn't really matter, see, that they per- that person is an unbeliever. It doesn't really matter because we're so in love we can overcome everything. And our love can conquer all. 
And God says, you got to be kidding me. Because what, what is common about light and dark? What do Satan and God have in common? What do you as a believer filled with the Holy Spirit and this person who doesn't know the Lord, what do you have in common? You have nothing in common except the lust. That's what it amounts to. And guys, I'm going to tell you something. This is, a, a, I'm going, this is free, okay? I'm just throwing it in there. It's something you probably have never understood or heard before. The person that you marry is going to be the person that you date. You're not going to marry somebody without dating them. You don't want to marry an unbeliever? Then don't date one. That may sound cruel. It's not. It's just wisdom. That I can date believers. I can date people with like mindsets, you know. But you know what? If, if, if regardless of how appealing it is, regardless of how much I would really like to know you and date you, that's not going to happen because I know that in the end, we'll, we'll probably both be hurt. And it never fails because people will jump into a marriage and our love can overcome everything until about a year later. And then they're in my office talking about all the differences and all the problems. I just never knew this about this person. My response is you should have known it. You should have. There are too many differences. And regardless, it may sound cruel and harsh, but you need to understand there is nothing that's going to overcome those differences until this person changes. And that may never happen. Now, it might. Please understand that. There, this is not true in every situation, okay? Some of you can attest to that fact. Well, I, we got married, we were unbelievers, and, and now we have both come to faith, and, you know, the Lord is blessed. Or I was a believer, and he wasn't, or she wasn't. And, and so, you know, things worked out well. I understand that. And <clears throat> that is true of a lot of things. But why go into a relationship where the deck is stacked against you when God has told you not to do it? Why do that? And so I've, I tell young people, I say, you know, it's a, it's a good rule to make for yourself that you're not going to seriously date an unbeliever. doesn't mean you can't go out in a group and have fun and all that, but when it comes to, you know, how it is, when you start looking, just look somewhere else. Because if God has told you, I don't want you to marry that person, then God has somebody else in mind for you. And you need to find that person. Now, here's the second point. first one was too many differences. Here's the second. This is a problem with being unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. You'll be dragged into situations where you don't want to be. You're going to be dragged into situations that you don't want to be a part of. This is what happened to Joshua. I'm being forced into this, and I don't want to do it. It's not, it's not what the plan was. You go into a relationship let's say a marriage, who are you going to hang around with as a couple? Who's going to be your friends? Is it going to be the crowd that your mate runs with or has run with, the people that you don't really have anything in common with? It may not even want to be around. Is it going to be those people? Or is it going to be the people in the church where your husband really, or wife, really feels out of place? Is it going to be those people? So you're going to be dragged into a situation you don't want to be in. What are you going to do when your spouse or your business partner or your best friend 
gets into drinking and drugs. What are you going to do? This has happened numerous times in marriages. You marry someone and all of a sudden the real person begins to come out. And you're dragged into this. Like it or not, you're dragged into it because this is the person you chose to marry. And then what are you going to do when the legal problems begin to develop? When they get caught for a DUI or they do something unethical? Who's paying the legal bills? Well, you are. Who's going to be humiliated? Well, you are. You're going to be dragged into situations that you never bargained for, nor did you ever want, simply because you chose to disobey the Lord and you chose to pursue somebody that God said, no, 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 not that person. If you think that somehow God is leading you to marry an unbeliever when God has said, don't do it, you're fooling yourself. That's not to say that something could happen years later and and God brings this person into your life after they've changed. But don't think that you can disobey Scripture and somehow God is going to be okay with that because it doesn't happen. Here's the third problem with this, and that is very simply. It will end up costing you too much. This relationship, be it business, friendship, or marriage, whatever it may be, is going to end up costing you too much. Financial loss, yeah. You're in a business relationship and because of this person's ethics, you're now bound to this business and this person is taking you down the tubes financially. You're in a marriage to an unbeliever and a year later you find out this is the biggest mistake you've ever made and you're parting ways, you end up in a divorce. In a divorce, you're losing money, friend. You're losing money. Your reputation is at stake here. You're in a business relationship with an unbeliever and this person does something unethical and your reputation is on the line. Your reputation is on the line in a marriage. Your children, what about them? Who's going to be the most powerful influence on those children? The emotional toll, the depression, the worry, the fear, your testimony, all of this is at stake simply because you disobeyed and you did something that God said don't do and you've entered into this relationship. And it always proves to be true that unless God intervenes and God does something in the life of that individual, it's you're going to have problems. I want to close and I want to leave you with this. I want to leave you with three things that I want you to remember out of all of this. I want you to remember these three things, okay? So you can write these down or just remember them, okay? But here they are. Number one, you need to remember, like I've said, that there is a difference between being yoked to an unbeliever and loving the unbeliever. There's that difference. And I don't want you to mistake these two, okay? Because, you know, I preach a sermon like this and you're going to walk out of here thinking that for some reason God doesn't want you to associate with people who aren't in the faith. And that's not the case at all. There's a balance here. And there's usually two extremes that we as Christians go to. On the first hand, we are too foolish and we're too easily duped and too easily just throwing away what God has told us to do and we fall right into the this relationship. And we'll make excuses and so forth, but we make a foolish decision. 
Now, on the other hand, we go to the other extreme and we're heartless, unloving, and unkind. Let me, let me tell you a story. In one of my previous ministries, this happened before I got there. I found out about it after I got there. And let me tell you how it unfolded, okay? I'll go to, the, to a particular church, and there were two men in the church, and I'll, we'll call them Bob and Joe. Bob was the, the churched man, the believer. Joe was living in the community, and he was unchurched and an unbeliever. They had contemplated or thought about, for some reason, and I, I never really heard the whole story, about going into a business venture together. Um, the unbeliever had approached him about, let's do some of this uh, farming work together and so forth, and we'll, we'll buy these, uh, this, this land, buy these farm, this, these, uh, uh, farm implementation, implements and, and, and these hogs and so forth. We'll go into business. Well, here's the, the believer now. He was in the church that I, that I went to, and Bob goes to the unbeliever, Joe, and he says to him this. See, Bob had been taught by the previous pastor what I'm teaching you today. But Bob didn't have a whole lot of tact. Bob didn't have a whole lot of love. Um, he had a tendency to be judgmental. So he goes to Joe, the unbeliever, and he says to him, I can't go in business with you because you're an unbeliever. Crushes the man. Basically what he hears is this, you're not good enough. You're different, you're weird, I can't do it. I come on the scene now at this church, and I'm, this is probably a year or two after it happened, and I'm hearing the story. As a matter of fact, Joe, the unbeliever, his wife begins to attend the church without him. She comes to Christ there in the church. My wife led her to the, to the Lord. And she begins to tell Deborah about the story and what happened and why it is that now her husband, who's got an excuse now, won't come to this church because, you see, old Bob is here. And he can't stand Bob because Bob judged him and Bob was mean to him and he's not coming. Well, this went on for years until finally one day, old Joe, the unbeliever, shows up at church. And as time went on, Joe comes to Christ. And Joe becomes a, a, a regular attender there at the church, and he and his family are part of the church. And he and old brother Bob had to get some things straightened out. And Bob had to come to the realization that even though I did the, quote, right thing, I went about it all wrong. And there had to be some forgiveness. There had to be some clearing the air. But they got it taken care of. And it was just the fact that God intervened in that and worked that out. Now, here's the reason I'm telling you this. Because you can take what I've told you here today and run with it and be cruel. And that's not what you're supposed to do. I can love somebody and I can be kind to that person. I can genuinely care about their spiritual well-being. Doesn't mean I have to marry them. Doesn't mean I have to go in business with them. Doesn't mean that I have to let them influence my life. You see, you and I have to be strong and stand up for what is right and wrong. But at the same time, in, in doing that, we have to love a world where they don't think like you do. 
They don't think biblically. They have different values. And you're going to get dirty in doing this. You're going to, it's just nasty. It really is. But God said, do it anyways. I don't want you to go out of here without a clear understanding of that difference. Because, no, I don't want you marrying an unbeliever. I don't want you going in business with them. I don't want you entangling yourself in a relationship with them. But I don't want you being cruel or unloving. And I want you to understand that. Here's the second challenge thing that I want you to remember, and that is this. You and I need to be obedient <clears throat> to what God has told us, even when we don't feel like it. Even when we don't feel like it. Some of you young people, maybe some of you older people who are single, maybe you're in a relationship. And in the back of your mind, deep down in your heart, you know it's wrong. Don't be disobedient. You know, you're going to have to trust the Lord in this. You're going to have to say, in effect, Lord, I, my, my feelings and emotions are pulled toward this person. But with my mind, I know that this is wrong. And I, with my mind, have got to choose to be obedient. And it will be painful, yeah. But God says, don't, don't, don't go down that road. So just remember, no matter how you feel, as Christians, we choose, as painful as it may be, we choose to obey what God has said. But now here's the third thing that I want you to remember. And this is where there's hope. Now listen, because some of you are in relationships already. You're married to an unbeliever already. Maybe you didn't know at the time, maybe you did. Maybe you didn't come to Christ till after the marriage, whatever. But you find yourself in a situation like that, or maybe in a business relationship or a friendship. Here's the third point that I want you to remember, so write it down, okay? I want you to remember that God's grace can override your mistakes. That God's grace can override your mistakes. Let's go back to the story for just a minute, okay? Joshua, on that day, defeated five kings, five armies in one day. It wasn't the way he wanted to do it, but God took his mistake and brought a blessing. You see, he had to fight these people at some point. He just didn't want to do it all at once. But God said, I'll take care of this. Yeah, you blew it. I understand that, and we are, we've acknowledged that. We, you know, we've got that down. Now I'm going to go before you and straighten this out. And he did. And not only that, but listen to what else took place. The people of Gibeon, these pagans, do you know that nowhere in Scripture does it ever say that the Gibeonites that he made this treaty with ever became a snare to the Israelites? And that, in fact, years later, what you see is a reference to the temple workers, which the Gibeonites were brought into that position. They were the ones that carried the wood for the altar, the water to the temple. That it even talks about them being strong in the faith. So, yeah, does God take a mess and straighten it out? He can. And, you know, if you're in that situation now and you're married to somebody that's an unbeliever or in a relationship where you shouldn't be in, 
then please understand that when you pray and you say, this is what I've done, and this is my sin, I've been disobedient. But God, I know that you can straighten this out. And I know that you can save my husband or my wife. I know that you can save my business partner, my best friend. I know that, Lord, you can do that. And you begin to pray for them, and you begin to lift them up to the Lord, and you begin to witness to them and share with them and just love them into the kingdom of Christ. Yeah, it'll happen. God can straighten out our messes, and guys, that's true of everything in life. And I'm so grateful for the grace of God. That God can take my sin and your sin and just work it around for a beautiful thing. So if you are in a situation where because of your disobedience, you look at yourself and you think, yeah, that's where I'm at. I'm right in the middle of this. Please understand that if you take it to the Lord in prayer and you begin now to earnestly pray, confessing the sin and lifting the situation up to God, God can change it. He really can. But that's only by the grace of God. If you're here this morning and you're wondering what this relationship with Jesus Christ is all about and how it begins, let me read you this verse and I'll close, okay? One last verse. It's in Titus 3.5, and I'm just looking at the first point. It says this, He saved us, not because of righteous things we have done, but because of His mercy. God saved your soul. All of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ understand that. That Jesus came down from heaven to earth. He's God in the flesh. He died on the cross. And God the Father took all of your sins... Let's say this is your sin, and God the Father lays it on Jesus Christ, his son, and he dies on a cross as payment that God required, the death of the sacrifice, the payment. He paid it. And he says that salvation and forgiveness and being with God and eternal life and all of these things that God has promised are not the result of your own righteousness, your own goodness, your own ability to obey. That's not what saves you. The Bible says it's only by the mercy of God. The grace of God saved your soul just like he did mine. I'm no better than you are because I'm a pastor. I'm a stinking sinner just like you that's been saved by the grace of God. There's no other way. The question is, will you believe it? And will you accept it? It is God's gift to you. For by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that nobody can boast. Will you trust Him? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment. If you're here this morning and you never understood this gospel, you've never understood what it means to be a Christian, it's not about being good. It's about what you believe. You can be the best person in the world and morally upright and still go to hell. Because God said the sin has to be taken care of. The penalty has to be paid. Cleaning up your act won't take care of the sin. It's still there. The guilt is there. But his son was the sacrifice. The blood of Jesus paid the sin. Paid the price. He turns to you and all he says is this. Will you believe that? Will you trust that to save you? And if you will... In that moment, I'll save you. I will give you eternal life as a gift.
acceptance. I would love nothing more than to talk with you. If you have any questions about that, there's a yellow card in the seat back in front of you. Just fill it out. Drop it in the offering plate. I'll give you a call. I'll meet with you. I'll talk with you. I'll answer any of your questions. But don't put this off. You can trust Jesus Christ right there where you sit today. Just choose to trust him. Heavenly Father, as we bow here before you, Father, we're thankful. We're thankful for the, the love that you have given us, Father. Father, we're thankful for your word and what it means to us and how it guides us in this life. Well, Father, I pray for each person here that all of us, in every decision that we make, we would seek to honor you and to obey you. And that, Father, where we have blown it, where we have made mistakes, we are trusting in the grace of God to make it right, to make changes. But, Father, I pray that each one of us, and especially the young people, that as we look ahead at our lives, we would be committed to making godly decisions. And especially in this area of the relationships that we may enter into with an unbeliever. Father, may we be mindful of the pitfalls of that and the dangers of that. And at the same time, we'll, may we never, ever be cruel, but to love them into the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name we pray.